0: Welcome to Week in Review, where we recap events and issues pertinent to central Illinois. I'm WMBD Radio News Director Will Stevenson. As of Friday night, the death toll had reached 59 from devastating wildfires that wiped out large areas of the island of Maui in Hawaii. Officials are expecting that death toll to go much higher in tragedy almost never seen before on the islands. But once again, Central Illinois is being called on to help. And with that, at least one member of the Central Illinois chapter of the American Red Cross is flying out to Maui this weekend. Steve Hilgers of Mason City, Illinois, not that far away, is deploying to Maui to help fellow Red Cross volunteers and the people of Maui themselves. I talked with Steve on Friday night. What goes through your mind when you take on uh, something like this, other than just sort of all the logistical stuff, like packing and and doing all that stuff? What what keeps you doing this? I'm. Getting...
1: What keeps me doing it is is helping people. Uh, I've always been into public service, and it just is amazing to see the response from people when you are there for them, and they give you so much back even the people that are suffering, uh, it just, it's just, it's just an incredible feeling. And, uh, it's just, it's just the right thing to do.
0: Yeah, it certainly sounds like it, at least for you, uh, for sure. And, uh, this is not your first, uh, trip into a, into a zone where some, uh, some bad stuff or some devastation has, has happened. Correct. You've, uh, y- did you go, what did I read right? You went to Puerto Rico after some of the hurricane damage there?
1: Yeah, I've deployed. Uh, I believe it's like seven or eight times. I was in Puerto Rico, and after that, uh, I went to uh, Florida. After that, for the hurricane that was there, and so I've and I've been to some wildfires in California, and and unfortunately, a lot of hurricanes in the the southeast part of the country.
0: I imagine that. As you said, that uh, that it's the right thing for you to do to take on these assignments, but uh, it, it it must give you some sort of a pause when you're in the in when you're in the middle of them and kind of seeing what what all's going on around you. I imagine
1: it it's amazing the devastation that that you see. Uh, I know we have tornadoes and things like that in the Midwest, but the devastation that happens with these fires and hurricanes it's just massive and it's just it's just awe you know it's just hard to imagine unless you see it tv does not do it justice in what you experience on the ground
0: yeah i imagine i imagine it certainly doesn't um what are some of your memories from some of those uh previous trips of yours what what uh, has really uh stuck out to you i mean and it's probably I imagine there's probably always something that sticks out regardless of how similar some of these some of these uh, situations have been, I imagine.
1: True. Uh, there's always something unique that happens that sticks out in everyone, but I still remember the first time that I deployed uh, Hurricane Florence and there was a family and they had some young children and they came up and just were hugging and saying thank you and they wanted to know what they could do for us and we're saying no we're here for you it was just uh just amazing uh how people are
0: that that's got to be such a sort of a, a rewarding feeling in the midst of tragedy there that knowing that you really are uh helping folks put their lives back together or at least get them cleaned up and sort of get their lives cleaned up and moved on in these
1: situations. Right, you know the Red Cross has a lot of resources for these people, and we want to get them on the co- the path to recovery. We want to get them to yes, yes, I can deal with the situation, yes, I can look for housing, yes, I can deal with the insurance company. That's what we're about is trying to help these people take that next step, and that it it and it and sometimes it just takes us the red cross going in there to help these people get to that next step
0: yeah for sure um this time around um you're uh assisting with staff services as we talked about here at the Mm -hmm. beginning but uh has that always been your assignment or what sorts of things have you have you done in these missions
1: i've i've done staff services a, a few times and and it's important because we need to make sure our people which are our best asset are in a good position where they are ready, anything last minute, trained, given them all the resources they need so they can go service the victims. Previously, I've done things like disaster assessment where you go physically go out and assess the damage itself. Uh, That's more client facing. What I'm doing on this deployment is taking care of our staff behind the scenes.
0: And uh, when you say you're, you're helping uh, staff behind the scenes, what does that entail?
1: Making sure that they have a place to stay, making sure they're fed, making sure if they have an issue, because it's, it's a lot to see, if the, that they ha- there's resources there. If we need to bring them in to, to give them the resources to, to get them through uh, whatever they're experiencing, because they're experiencing emotionally a lot of stuff going on uh making sure that every day they have a everything they need to go out and service our clients which are our victims to make their life better so it's it it works backwards but we take care of each other it's full circle we take care of our clients we take care of our staff we take care of each other
0: depending on the situation Steve is it easier in some uh, environments than others to to get the volunteers what they need in order to effectively do their jobs
1: every disaster is different uh, I was on a disaster where I ate Mres for a couple of weeks you never know what you're going to get into uh, whether you, the situation presents uh, you just you just roll with it and that's part of part of the situation. That's part of the excitement and part of the fun to go out there and take care of the people, take care of yourself. You never know what you're going to get into once you hit the ground.
0: So you're really uh, part of the, I guess, the, the backbone to uh, sort of the, the planning and, and sort of the organization of, of and some of the other things, I guess, we don't necessarily always think about back home when the Red Cross or other volunteers go into some of these situations.
1: What I'm going into now, yes, uh, it was a a really humbling experience when I went on uh, staff services before to see what it takes to support our workers so they can support the victims. It is, there's a lot of moving parts and the Red Cross is all about making sure we take care of each other and our victims.
0: Um, how many uh, total uh, missions have you gone on? I guess I didn't ask that earlier.
1: I believe this is going to be my eighth Oh my! Wow. In, ter- in terms of a national deployment. And that is nothing compared to some of these folks. There's people that are double digits out there. There's people that uh, can go all the time. I'm just not in that position. But uh, there's people that are on the ground ready to go at a moment's notice.
0: Do you ever get to talk to them about what keeps them going versus uh, when you have time to do this, what uh, what keeps you going into these missions?
1: Oh, absolutely. I've, I've made uh, friends all across the country that I still talk to, and uh, they are driven by the same thing. It's about helping our fellow man, you know, taking care of each other. Uh, it's it, It's an amazing feeling to get out there and perform the job and when you are done and when you get home you say yeah we did good
0: do you uh, what what sort of I I guess mental preparation goes into a trip like this and I ask that because uh, in the last couple of days of reporting on the story and seeing some of the pictures coming out of coming out of Maui just beyond the simple sort of you know I don't think I recognize it now. I just, I I don't know that I've ever seen anything like it, but I imagine maybe you've seen things a little closer to like that in the trips you've gone on.
1: This is definitely a big disaster. Uh, And every disaster is a big disaster to the people it affects, but this is a big one. Uh, Red Cross, make sure before you deploy that you're good. You know what you're getting into. Uh, For an example, a mental health person contacted me. Do you know this? Do you know this? Do you know this? They don't want to send you into a situation that is unfamiliar or, or you're not ready for what you're going to see. And once you get on the ground, those same resources are there all the time. So the Red Cross takes care of their volunteers in terms of their needs emotionally, physically, and spiritually all the time.
0: Central Illinois Red Cross volunteer Steve Hilgers called on once again to help in the aftermath of devastation, this time in Maui. You can help the people of Maui recover and help the Red Cross in their mission in Maui. You can call 1-800-RED-CROSS to make a donation, go to the Red Cross website and donate online, or text Hawaii- to 90999 in order to make a $10 donation. More Week in Review coming up. Senator Dick Durbin spent some time in central Illinois this week. He met with FBI Director Christopher Wray in Springfield, where Durbin lives, and he also came to Peoria. Here, the senior senator from Illinois met with executives of Carl Health at Methodist Hospital, expressing concern over what's believed to be a shortage of cancer treatment drugs thanks in part to ongoing supply chain issues.
1: I'm Jim Leonard, President and CEO of Carl Health. We're very excited to host Senator Durbin and his uh, team. We have a multidisciplinary approach to supporting patients and getting the right chemotherapy and other therapeutics at the right time is incredibly important and is life-saving. And while the global impact of the supply chain challenges many industries, in healthcare, it's huge, and there really is not room for error. As we look to partner on many fronts going forward to find collective solutions uh, for healing the diseases uh, within the cancer rubric, uh, it's very important that we have the right
2: drugs at the right time and the right place to be able uh, to administer.
1: Senator Dick Durbin.
2: Thank you, Dr. Leonard. It's an honor to be here with you and Dr. Knipp and the other team from Carl uh, Methodist and we are fortunate to live in this time and place uh, with all of the advancements in medicine and treatment and some of the best providers uh, in the United States in our state uh, this is a great example of uh, one of those providers that I'm honored to uh, represent in Washington uh, we're here to discuss some emerging challenges in health care that apply not just to this hospital but all hospitals imagine you're sitting in a doctor's office and you get the gut-wrenching news that there's a cancer uh, diagnosis in your family. Your doctor has a plan, but you learn that the frontline medication used to treat your cancer is in shortage. How can this be in modern America? I want to read from a letter I received recently from an Illinois constituent. She wrote, My mother-in-law has stage 4 cancer and is in desperate need of the chemo drug carboplatin in order to stay alive. Her oncologist has moved her to this medication, which is the one thing that has the potential to save her. The drug, however, is in short supply, and her doctor can't get it. She's in a holding pattern, and we're not ready to lose her. This heartbreaking note is one example of the desperation that patients, families, and health care providers experience with shortages of life-saving cancer drugs. Today, 300 drugs are in shortage in the United States representing a 30% increase in uh, drug shortages since 2021. There are a variety of reasons for this. Fragile supply chains for generics, manufacturing problems, limited market competition, and over-reliance on materials from other countries. The current shortage of cancer drugs, cisplatin and carboplatin, occurred because of manufacturing problems in India but they reflect deeper structural problems in our supply chain. These are frontline medications that successfully treat hundreds of thousands of U.S. cancer patients. But because of limited supplies, providers are forced to ration care for their sickest patients, delaying or denying care for others. We know that this can have a life-or-death consequence. After learning of these shortages, I sent a letter to the Food and Drug Administration. I asked this agency to allow for the safe importation of drugs from other countries, exploring as well whether we could safely extend the shelf life of existing supplies and expediting inspections and reviews to resolve manufacturing problems. Shortly after sending this letter, the FDA responded and announced it would allow for the importation of an injectable version of cisplatin from overseas. I'm grateful the FDA has taken this first step. It may save some lives, but more has to be done to prevent these shortages in the first place and to ensure that cancer patients and others don't face this. Since the beginning of COVID, I've worked to strengthen our federal drug stockpile. Senator Lamar Alexander of Tennessee, a Republican who's now retired, joined me in an effort with the National Academies to take a look at the drug shortage issue which we faced at the beginning of COVID. Remember when PPE was so hard to find? Well, the question was, why weren't we prepared? And why will we be prepared in the future? They came back with a report which I think gives us guideposts to where to move to. I work to strengthen our federal drug stockpile of drugs, enhance FDA's visibility into pharmaceutical supplies change, and boost our domestic manufacturing capacity. That's just the start. Receiving a cancer no- diagnosis is distressing enough. But to then be told there's no drug to save you, that's unacceptable. And to provide the best care for patients, we need to make sure healthcare providers have the resources they need.
3: I am Keith Nepp, uh, president of Carl Health Greater Peoria. I just want to close out today. After hearing a lot about the recent challenges that healthcare providers are facing to serve patients, especially pertaining to drug shortages and behavioral health access, I was telling the senator uh, just moments before we came up here that our own pharmacy team made me aware today of a patient in our care who's in need of a generic, life-saving cancer drug. And we are working hard to ensure that we have that supply, but it's taking an all-out effort to make that happen. So this issue is very real. We're facing it every day, and we greatly appreciate your efforts, Senator, uh, to help to solve these uh, complex challenges.
2: When we're talking about breakthrough brand name drugs, high profits are the motive. When you come to generic drugs, profitability is not the major motive. It's an important part of the, of the, the equation but it's not so much uh, an incentive for production and more production uh, and we have to understand that some of these generic drugs are absolutely essential for successful treatment of cancers uh, and uh, I feel as the National Academy mentioned we should be stockpiling some of these drugs uh, if possible uh, so that we have interruptions in the supply chain, we won't be uh, held back from providing treatment, critical life-saving treatment. One of the drugs produced in India, the production was shut down after an inspection found that there was need for change, that it wasn't as safe as it should be. Well, we're never going to compromise on quality and, and uh, the uh, value of a drug is, that's being produced. We never want to compromise that. But it meant shutting down the production facility if you can imagine and trying to make up the difference in stockpiles and, and uh, reserves that might be set aside so when it's overseas it's even more challenging
3: we have some uh, generic medications yes. there are some generic medications where there is a single manufacturer or a single manufacturing facility that produces that drug so we saw that when a hurricane hit puerto rico We've seen it when tornadoes hit manufacturing facilities, take out the only factory, and then we have a challenge. So that's one issue, as well as just the fragility of um, international supply lines, you know, like we saw when the Suez Canal got backed up. And then if, if all the drugs are coming from one place, then that can be an issue. So it's not a, it's not a single issue. It's those things all coming together. Our goal when we have a patient impact is always to do the best thing for the patient in front of us. So we'll do whatever we can to secure the drug in question, and often we're able to be successful in that. Otherwise, we look for the nearest alternative, and sometimes there are treatment alternatives. Um, so we, we pursue all those avenues you know, before we would give up on uh, providing someone with the care that they need.
0: Senator Dick Durbin, Carl Health Peoria CEO Dr. Keith Knapp, and Carl President Dr. James Leonard. More Week in Review coming up. The work is years away, but Ameren, Illinois, is in the public feedback stage of a project that could see increased energy production and safety in Illinois. Ameren, along with their counterparts in other Midwestern states, are planning for an upgrade of the local energy grid. They held an open house earlier this week in Bartonville and another in Morton to talk about the plan with customers. At the Bartonville stop, I talked with Ameren Transmission Company of Illinois project manager, Drew Beam.
4: The project consists of um, building about 380 miles of transmission line. Um, We are also building three new substations and making upgrades to um, a handful of other substations. Um, What we're doing here is increasing the transmission capacity of the system. Um, It's useful to think of this in terms of a road. Um, Sometimes um, new roads need to be built, existing roads need to be expanded, and in some cases, old roads need to be retired. And that's what we're doing here today with the transmission system is that we're expanding the capacity of the transmission system, which will allow us to move more energy more efficiently from a more diversified set of generation sources. So what you're telling me is that this is
0: sort of a necessary, sort of an an expansion here, probably crucial or is it just
4: trying to get ahead of any future problems um, this is a this is a crucial project this is necessary for the infrastructure of the electric grid in the region um, over the past um, several decades and we expect for decades to come the way that we um, generate energy in this country and in this region continues to change and um, what we are doing at Ameren Transmission is um, responding to this change and anticipating this change over the next several decades um what have you heard from the public
0: so far if anything have
4: you have you been able to steal any good ideas yet as you suggested sure sure yeah so the the public feedback has been positive so far um the fortunate thing that we have going for us um, on this project is the vast majority of the project um, is being constructed in existing corridor which means that amarin transmission has existing structures and existing wire in this area and we are just adding a circuit um so from the big picture um the um the impacts of of the construction of this project will be minimal to the landowners since you're just it
0: sounds like you're just sort of adding on as you said is that is that the best way to do this is that going to cause problems down the road if you're you're adding circuits and things like that
4: or versus say building something new i guess sure so um so we specifically picked the, this approach to this project um, um, based, on, based on the impacts to the landowners. So the end goal of this is to add a 300, 345 kilovolt circuit. Um, so we could do greenfield across the whole state, but whenever um, we sat down and started looking at this project, we saw the great opportunity to co-locate the new 345 circuit along an existing circuit that's already in the field. Um so it,
0: it, if i 'm understanding this right you're you're going to be able to add this circuit you're going to be able to i'm guessing what provide better energy, more energy, both
4: that sort of thing yes sir, so um more energy. And more efficiently from more diversified set of generation sources so what we are seeing is that um, as a region and as a country we are moving away from um, the centralized giant behemoth energy centers and we are moving toward more localized smaller um, energy producers and to um, to update the grid um, to accept this energy um, these new circuits and these substation upgrades are a necessary infrastructure upgrade. Does that allow
0: you to i guess say limit or hopefully lessen the the possibility
4: of outages and things like that? Yes, so the um, um, the, the pri- one of the primary goals of the program is the resiliency and the reliability of a system so the way that a transmission system works is usually on layers of redundancy so that when a tornado for example knocks down one transmission line we have a redundant line that can flip on immediately so there's no impacts to the end user Um, and that's what we're doing today so we're we're adding another circuit which um, allows us to add another layer of redundancy on the system which means that we can um, withstand unplanned events such as weather Um, without having any impacts to the end user. The benefits of adding um, transmission capacity are the um, redundancy factor, um, so that um, when something unplanned happens on the line, we are better able to respond. Um, We can respond by switching over to a different transmission line, or we can respond by fixing the line. But in both cases, um, an additional circuit will allow um for us to minimize any sort of disruption to um electricity in your homes or businesses is that sort of a thing that that's like an
0: automatic thing so you don't necessarily have to send people out like in bad conditions and things like that
4: or is it a combination of manpower and technology Sure, so um, so one of the benefits of adding a layer of redundancy, um, before you add a layer of redundancy, if a tornado, for example, knocks down a transmission line, that area may experience an outage until we can get linemen out there to repair the line. However, with an additional layer of redundancy, um, we have an existing alternate path in place. So if a tornado um, knocks out a transmission line, we can immediately um, switch over to the existing hardware and, um, like I've been saying the the, the end consumer wouldn't know um, the difference that a that a transmission line has been knocked out by a tornado. Ameren continues to um, make strides in um, the way that we approach our projects, the way that we design our projects, and the standard of safety that that we adhere to. so um, as as the grid continues to change and as um, the way that we produce energy continues to change, um, we are modernizing the grid alongside that so that the grid can evolve alongside our community.
0: Are there any environmental impacts to this? Or I imagine not, but are, are there any at
4: all? Sure. So there are some areas that the existing corridor goes through that goes through existing um sensitive environmental areas so things like forest or um we go we cross um three rivers so um those are things that are that are um first first and foremost for the team right now to, to be focusing on um we're fortunate to um to be using an existing corridor so that should cut down on the amount of unknown unknowns um um, but it, it is still it's still a a, a, a huge priority for um, for the project team to minimize our impacts on the landowners of of this county and the state, and minimize the impact on on the environment and our wildlife. If I remember uh, from what I saw uh,
0: correctly here in the map, you're basically looking to do you're doing this from one end of the state of
4: the to the other, aren't you? Yes, sir. So, um, so there's two main corridors. Um, we are touching. We are connecting with the transmission operator in Iowa, and we're also connecting with the transmission I- operator in Indiana. So, this really is a regional project. Um, Ameren's scope of the project is limited to um, Illinois and Missouri, um, but but yes, this is this is a, a regional project. So, folks in Indiana and folks in Iowa and folks in Missouri are going through this same process right now as we modernize the grid. I know you mentioned it at the beginning, but let me uh, ask again about timeline. Where are you at and and where do you hope to be? Sure. So um, we will start construction in the summer of 2026, and we anticipate to be finished with the program, including finished with restoration by 2030.
0: That's a long time. Can things change or I guess can technologies change or things
4: like that in that time? Or or do you see that this is where you're going to need to be? Um, We're pretty confident that um, our design approach um, today will will stand the test of time over the next, you know, seven years and also over the next, you know, three decades. Um, So we're confident in, in in the design of the project
0: so be honest with me here how many people have come up to you and said oh just as long as you don't raise my rates
4: that's a common one um you hear as long as you don't raise my rates and as long as you're not going through my backyard those are those are common um those are common sentiments that that we um listen to um during the during the public process and that's what we're here to to address today is to have these frank conversations with the landowners and with the community and and gather their feedback on how we can best approach this project what do you tell
0: somebody when they bring up things like rates?
4: Um, I'm I'm upfront. You know, according to according to um, our analysis, when um, this program is put into service in um, 2030, Ameren, Illinois residential customers can expect an increase of about 30 cents per month. That doesn't seem like a lot. <laughs> It's not. So the so the way that this program is being paid for is cost shared. So across the entire region, um, the entire region is pitching together to upgrade and modernize the grid. And each region is on the hook for how much energy they use. Um, so once you put that into the formula, like I said, you can Ameren, Illinois residential customers can expect about $4 per year.
0: Ameren Transmission Company of Illinois Project Manager Drew Beam. Again, the project is a couple years away from- from starting, but should be complete by 2030, assuming all the regulatory hurdles are met. More Week in Review. Coming up. Earlier this week, an important birthday was marked with an important birthday gift. The name of Annie Malone might be familiar to Peorians as the first black female millionaire in the country. She got that way because of a cosmetics and hair care business she started. While a good portion of her career was in St. Louis, Malone's heart and her early childhood life was in Peoria. That was evident this week in a big announcement from John Morris, Peoria Riverfront Museum CEO.
5: Thousands of every student initiative school children, the entire Peoria Public Schools K-8, through have heard about Annie Malone, have come through these galleries. So today we gather uh, because, like Bryson... Has made the decision to do something extraordinary. The personal collection of artifacts, photographs, documents that is in his possession that tell the story of Annie Malones, that were Annie Malones, that were family members, I borrow today makes a promise gift of that collection to the Peoria Riverfront Museum and through us to the people. So in a few minutes we'll formally have a signing ceremony for what we call a promise gift, the intention to continue to work with our museum and our staff in order to lift up this story. Objects tell stories, stories inspire people. And Everly Davis is our lead in working with our chief curator, Bill Conger, to put together an exhibition of these artifacts. And there's so many of them, I don't know if we'll get them all out all at once, but many of these artifacts will fill up this entire gallery beginning September 16th and going at least through March of 2024, early March of 2024, in what is going to be the largest Annie Malone exhibition ever mounted by any museum in the country. Larry Ivory, who's the chairman of the National Black Chamber of Commerce, our own Joshua Gunn, uh, who's the president and CEO of our own Chamber of Commerce, among many other corporate sponsors, are stepping up to sponsor this exhibition, to sponsor the promotions, to sponsor all of the work that our, our uh, staff will do to put this together. And so I talked to Larry yesterday and he sends his regards and believes that in Annie Malone we have a story that, in many ways, is so remarkable because those of us in Peoria might have heard Annie Malone, Akbar might have realized how poor she was, might have, as he has told me, but just eight years ago, and Margaret's constant encouragement, said, "Wait a minute, Annie Malone is the real deal. She is a major league player. She is the the OG." Of entrepreneurial activity for women, women of color, for America. And folks, if we cannot use that story to increase our pride and confidence that some little girl will come through here on a tour with the Every Student Initiative and herself believe that she can do it, then we can't do anything. But you know we can. And Annie Malone is with us today in spirit and let's all work together to keep this story going with this exhibition and this collection. So I would like to bring forward the, for greetings on behalf of the board, the chair of our collections committee, uh, for words about why this is an important promised gift. In a collection that already numbers 18,000 objects, paintings, sculpture, works on, paper, a a bronze mask of Abraham Lincoln, the first ever photographs of Richard Pryor, Uh, amazing things in our collection, but this promised gift is important, and here to tell us uh, from the board is Josh Schwank, chair of the collections committee. With every item that is
6: uh, asked to be given to the museum, the collections committee and the curatorial team here have to really weigh can we honor the gift and, and how does it play a part and a role in this facility, in, in you know, the People's House, Peoria? And um, it's a major thing. We have so many different concentrations within the museum itself. This tells such an amazing story of achievement from our community. And the, the exhibition that the team, the Bill uh, and his team has created here Uh, over the last uh, while that uh, uh, Andy Malone's possessions have been been on display has really told that story. And I heard this a couple months ago and it makes perfect sense. When children come through from ESI or or organically with their families and they see an achievement of somebody and they see that the person looks like them, that changes their thought process, what they can do. And you never know where the ripples in the water Take a person in their trajectory of life, and this Annie Malone collection is just that. It shows that uh, a a young girl can have aspirations and and set their sights on something and achieve it. To have the first African American female millionaire come from Peoria and start her career here, and the ripples that her her contributions have made in this city state world are amazing and, and it's humbling that she came from peoria and we're, we're just a little part of it so from the uh, the collections team uh we're excited we're excited to be able to show these achievements and have this as part of the museum uh, so thank you for for your faith in for your riverfront museum
5: now for sort of a crystallizing moment dr barbara Bryson. Come forward, please. Bill Conger. if you would please step forward. I want you two here at the table. I'm gonna let Bill say a few introductory uh, remarks about what we're about to see as an official signing
7: ceremony. Bill, here you go. Thank you, John. We've come a long way in five years. It was about five years ago. I, I was on the job about a year, and I was wandering the gallery, and I borrowed Found me, and I can't remember how we found each other, but we did. And about a 40-minute discussion ensued about the potential of storytelling at this museum, and he schooled me pretty good that day. He had a lot to say, and, and it was correct. Um, this gift uh, constitutes not only, probably the most important collection gift of history that the museum has ever received, um, if you recall, we talk about the Peoria Riverfront Museum being the Museum of Art, Science, History, and Achievement. Uh, it, it is without a doubt that this, this very important gift also constitutes the most important and probably first uh, gift directly connected to personal achievement on literally a national and beyond scale as it begins in Peoria, Illinois. Uh, It's a most extraordinary uh, gift of objects that we cannot wait to share with the public, and it's coming soon, and you'll hear a little more about that. Uh, On the table in front of us, we have a uh, Poro College ring that was Annie's, and this ring, if you look inside there, is from Singer uh, Jewelers in Peoria, Illinois, so we know that's where she she got. Do we know anything more about this?
1: Well, this, this ring, if you worked five years for handing Malone, loan, uh, would be given to you. So this is a retention component for employers out there. Uh, anybody worked here more than five years, museum owes you a diamond ring. <laughs> 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 but along with, uh, with this ring, I just had the uh, privilege. There's so much stuff, Bill, that uh, still, I have. I'm scared to go through it, but I never know what I'm going to find. So, this is one, one of the rare findings that, that, that we had here. But Annie Malone not only gave away rings, but he helped her uh, employees fund their, their students for college, helped them buy houses and things. So, this is just a small token token of uh, something that is rare, something that I just have to be blessed to have in my possession. So, I just want to
7: share that with you.
0: Peoria Riverfront Museum CEO John Morris and others, The Life and Legacy of Annie Malone opens about a month from now, September 16th. That does it for this edition of Week in Review. I'm Will Stevenson, WMBD Radio News.